Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. Last week, we began a bit of an impromptu series uh, called Jesus Above All. And what I mean by impromptu is that it wasn't originally on the schedule or even in my mind. I've said many times before, I'm constantly collecting ideas and making notes and talking to the Lord about what kind of topics that we need to discuss as a church. And as we're preparing for the single largest transition in our history as a church outside of our public launch day, which was in 2018, um, there's, I'm balancing a lot of tension. There's a great need for preparation. Paul, the great first century missionary, is often quoted from his letter to the believers in Ephesus. In Ephesians 3.20, he said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. While this verse, I feel like, is a lot of time quoted out of context, I do think that we as a church are moving into a season that is immeasurably more than we can ask for or imagine. And so there is a great need for preparation. Right? We need unity in our hearts. We need finances. We need new and better systems. We need new and better ways of doing things. We need new and better volunteers. That's <laughs> Just kidding. I am kidding. <laughs> I am kidding. You guys are absolutely the best. Uh, we don't need better volunteers, but we are going to need some new volunteers as we continue to transition. So the tension I feel is this need to rally the troops, to cast vision, this need to recruit and motivate people to serve. And I really thought that that's where this next series would take us. And again, I think we will eventually get to that. But every time I sat down to prepare, I just couldn't go there yet. Because if we don't get this Jesus above all thing right, then nothing else will be right. Born in 1897, A.W. Tozer was described as an evangelical mystic. He emphasized the need for a deeper knowledge of God and development of the inner life. He was extremely influential in the evangelical in, in evangelical Christianity, often called a 20th century prophet. And he once suggested, quote, if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the earth today, most churches wouldn't even notice his absence. Listen, we need good systems, but it becomes dangerous when we rely more on our systems than we do on God. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We need God and we need systems. But if Jesus isn't above all, then what we're doing doesn't even matter. And so last week we began this conversation and we looked heavily at a discussion that Jesus had with his disciples found in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. It says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, the son, or who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? 
And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is a defining moment in the lives of the disciples. People were saying all kinds of things about who Jesus was. And Jesus wanted to know who those closest to him thought that he was. And Peter responded, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, to which Jesus responds, you're right. And on this revelation or on this realization that I am the Messiah, this rock, I will build my church. In other words, the fact that Jesus is the son of God is the foundation that everything else is built on. And so last week we said each of us have to answer this same question. Who do you say I am? In the first century, people called him a prophet. In the 21st century, people still call him a prophet. In the first century, people call him a good and moral teacher. In the 21st century, people call him a good and moral teacher. In the first century, people called him a liar. In the 21st century, people still call him a liar. In the first century, people called him a miracle worker, which we just sang about. And in the 21st century, people call him a miracle worker. But the question remains, who do I say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And maybe you're like, dude, why are we talking about this? We believe Jesus is the son of God. We get it. And herein, unintentionally, lies our problem. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is quoted as saying this in James chapter 2. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be careful with my words because I don't, I don't want to bring, uh, I don't want to convolute anything. Paul famously said in the, his letter that he wrote to the Romans, in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And this is why we often lead people in a prayer of confession or profession, whichever word you want to use. We're following the example and the words of Paul found in this letter to the Romans. If someone believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth, they will be saved. But we are stopping short of the whole picture. About 10 or 11 years ago, I read an amazing book by Kyle Eidelman called Not a Fan. And as God has been stirring my heart on this topic of Jesus above all, I kind of felt prompted to pick this book back up. And when I opened it and began to read again, I don't know if I've ever read something that so in the moment articulated my own thoughts. And so I'm going to share some of his quotes as we move forward from this book intertwined with my own commentary. Now, why do I tell you that? I want to give Kyle Eidelman credit and I want to encourage you to pick up his book for yourself. It's an incredible book. Two, I don't want to break the speaking flow a lot as we get rolling here with a lot of stop and go and differentiating and all of the things. Plus, you'll probably be able to tell. If it's really good, it's probably him. If it's kind of good, it's probably me. <laughs> Three, many of you have experienced speakers passing off someone else's words as their own and later felt deceived. I never have any intention of doing that. That's why I'm all the time saying this person said or that person said or whatever. And four, you and I, we all need additional input other than here. 
If this is the only place you get in input, then you are terribly malnourished spiritually. You're not going to make it. It's helpful for us to invest in books, podcasts, and other resources from trusty, trusted godly sources that can feed your spirit outside of these walls. All right, so back to the question. Is simply believing that Jesus is the Messiah enough? Unfortunately, many of us have made a decision to believe in Jesus without making a commitment to follow Jesus. The gospel allows for no such distinction. Biblical belief is more than mental assent or verbal acknowledgement. Many of us have repeated a prayer or raised our hand or walked to the front of a, of a church at the end of a sermon and we made a decision to believe, but there was no commitment to follow and Jesus never offered such an option. He is looking for more than words of belief. He's looking to see how those words are lived out in our lives. When we decide to believe in Jesus without making a commitment to follow Jesus, we become what Kyle Eidelman calls nothing more than fans. Think about all of the weddings that you've been to. One of the things I dislike about weddings is having to dress up. When I did Joe and Brandy Booth's wedding, I don't know if she's in here, uh, she made me buy a suit. And so thanks to Brandy, everyone else who gets married or buried, I have something to wear. <laughs> so you're at a wedding and you're watching this couple profess their love for each other publicly. And the husband says something like forsaking all others until death do us part. And the wedding is over and they head to Leesburg for their honeymoon. Anybody? <laughs> Am I the only one that's ever been to Leesburg for your honeymoon? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not on the top 10 honeymoon destinations, but if you're getting married soon, you should consider it. Um, <laughs> all right, here's the story. I'll tell you that. I'm going to get back to this. When Katie and I got married, someone purchased for us like a three-day cruise or something for our honeymoon, but it was like a week after we got married. And we were so broke that we couldn't afford to go away on our wedding night. So after the wedding, we went through all of the cards. We didn't read them, and we took out all of the cash we could find. And we ended up in Leesburg at Microtel. <laughs> Exciting, I know. Uh, and slightly embarrassing. The truth is, we took back almost every single gift we received just to make ends meet. And so if you were at our wedding and you gave us a gift, I'm sorry. I don't know where it is. And there's a good chance we took it back and used the money for something else. <laughs> All right, back to the wedding. Has nobody ever done anything like that? You guys haven't had hard times. And let me tell you, when we get up here and talk about tithing, that's why we believe in it so much. Because through those times, we gave. There were times when we went to Hardee's when they had the double deal where you could get a value meal with two burgers, two small fries, and two small drinks. We didn't have $5 between both of us. And that's how we would go out on a, on a date. But you know what we were doing in the middle of that? We were faithful to give and to honor God. And listen, I know it's a side note. You guys are so faithful, man. You're doing so much. And I don't mean if that comes across as... That's not what I meant. I'm just saying it's we're passionate about it because we've lived it where we've had nothing and we gave anyway. And on the other side of it, we came through and God did amazing things. All right. What am I talking about? <laughs> All right. Back to the wedding. Not our wedding. The guy in the story's wedding. If after their profession of love publicly, 
the till death do us part. If you learned that on their honeymoon that the husband was unfaithful, suddenly the words that he spoke would hold no value. They would be worthless. You would rightly assume that the words he emotionally expressed publicly meant little because they were not validated by faithful commitment. Are you tracking with what I'm talking about? We cannot separate our belief from our commitment. Now, let's go back to the words of James, the brother of Jesus. As we read through this, you're going to see the word faith a lot. And some of you will know that the original New Testament manuscripts are, were translated to English from Greek. One of the definitions of the word faith in this passage that we're about to read is believe. All right, so let's read the words of the brother of Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith or belief but has no deeds? Can such faith or belief save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith or belief by itself is if it is not accompanied by action is dead. But someone will say, I have faith or you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Our faith and our belief is made complete by our corresponding action. We cannot separate our belief from our commitment or our belief from our action. In the mind of James, these two things could not be separated. But in our Western culture, we've managed to do just that. We tend to define belief as the acceptance of something that is real or true. But biblical belief is more than just intellectual acceptance or heartfelt acknowledgement. It's a commitment to follow. Following, by definition, requires more than just mental assent. It calls for movement. And one of the reasons our churches have become what Kyle Eidelman in the book calls fan factories is that we have separated the message of believe from the message of follow. And after separating these two messages, they get out of balance. Now, listen, I'm not saying that following is more important than believing. What I'm saying is, is that the two are firmly connected. They are the heart and lungs of our faith. One can't live without the other. If you try to separate the message of follow from the message of believe, then belief dies in the process. And our churches will continue to be full of fans until we break down this dichotomy between following and believing. Following is part of believing, but to truly believe is to follow. So in case someone, including myself, left it out or forgot to mention it when they explained what it meant to be a Christian, a.k.a. a Christ follower, let me be clear. There is no forgiveness without repentance. There is no salvation without surrender. There is no life without death. And there is no believing without commitment. Is anybody familiar with the term DTR? DTR? 
DTR conversation. Even if you're not familiar with the term, you've likely had a DTR talk. If you Google it, DTR stands for define the relationship. It's usually the official talk that takes place at some point in a romantic relationship to determine the level of commitment. Anybody ever had one of those conversations? <laughs> Few people. I feel like the older you get and if you're single, like the quicker the conversation comes up. Like I'm going to be 47 this week. This is a lot. And so I was 34 when I met Katie. When you're 34, have two kids and feel called to full time vocational ministry. That DTR happens pretty quick. Like, you know what I mean? Like you don't have time to be getting deeply connected to someone emotionally if you're not going the same direction. When you're young, you're basically stupid. <laughs> and you, like you'll connect with somebody who's like, I feel called to live in Siberia. You're like, I feel called to live in the Keys. You're like, let's get together. We're like, go figure it out. No, you won't. It's not going to work. You're just like, you haven't had the DTR. So here's a question for us. Have you ever had a DTR determine the relationship with Jesus? We see all kinds of these conversations in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We read two of them last week, Matthew 16. We already talked about one. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? What's he saying? Let's define this relationship. Who do you say I am? Where are we headed here? Where do you see this relationship going? We read a portion of another one in Matthew chapter 19. The passage most frequently, frequently referred to as the rich young ruler. This young ruler with great wealth approached Jesus to find out how he could receive eternal life. And Jesus doesn't waste any time defining the relationship. If you want eternal life, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And what happened? The young man wasn't ready for that kind of commitment, and so he went away sad, the Scripture tells us. Now, in John chapter 30, we find one of the most famous DTR conversations of all time. It's the story where a religious leader named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus is not just a normal guy. He was well-known, and he was a well-respected man of God. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was an elite group of community and religious leaders. So on the outside and from a distance, Nicodemus has been watching Jesus perform miracles. He's seen Jesus be compassionate and loving. And now he's convinced that Jesus has been sent from God. We read in John chapter three, verse two, he says this. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus is ready to take his relationship with Jesus to another level. But the problem is that there would be much to lose if Nicodemus went public as a Jesus follower. At the very least, he would have lost his position in the Sanhedrin. Essentially, Nicodemus becomes a secret admirer, but being a secret admirer cost him nothing. But becoming a follower would come at a very, very high price. So he's at a crossroads. Does he choose his religion that he's been so committed to or does he choose relationship? So in verse two, we read that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. 
But why? I mean, as we just described, he's risking a lot by meeting with Jesus, but he's risking way less by meeting with him at a time when everyone else is asleep. Meeting with Jesus privately at night costs him nothing. It's as though he wants to follow Jesus, but not be required to make any real changes. As long as I can do this privately, I don't have to worry about losing my job, my status, or being questioned, ridiculed, rejected by friends and family. In the words of Kyle Eidelman, there is no way to follow Jesus without him interfering in your life. Following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus always costs something. For Nicodemus, it would have cost him his powerful position. It would cost him the respect of his co-workers. It would cost him his source of income and his livelihood. It would cost him his friendships. See, most of us don't mind Jesus making some minor changes in our lives, but, he, but Jesus doesn't want just to make minor changes. He wants to turn our lives upside down. Right? We don't mind a little touch-up work here or there, but Jesus wants a complete renovation. We think Jesus wants to give us a tune-up, but he wants to give us an overhaul. We don't mind being inspired by Jesus, but he wants to interfere into every aspect of our lives. Jesus responds to Nicodemus and says in John chapter 3, verse 3, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You have to be born again. This dialogue leads us to one of the most famous verses of Scripture in all of the world. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. We read this, and we've been taught that all you have to do is believe. And that's part of it. But it's only one side of the coin because belief without commitment won't work. The word believe in this context is the Greek word pistuo. And when you listen to part of this definition, it means this to believe, put one's faith in, trust with an implication that actions based on that trust may follow. Or it means faith. That refers to the Christian systems of, listen, a belief and lifestyle. Again, this is not either or. This is not throw belief out because we have to have that. Scripture is clear. It's a both and. Belief and commitment. Two sides of the same coin. John chapter 3 ends and kind of leaves us wondering what happened to Nicodemus. He shows up a couple more times and ultimately he moved from secret admirer to public follower. And if you, like Nicodemus, have believed in the darkness, I want to tell you that Jesus is inviting you to follow him in the light. Listen, this subject matter might not make the top 10 most popular. It's probably right up there with Leesburg as a honeymoon destination. And I get it. And if I can be completely transparent, I'm not even sure sometimes how to correct course. Like we've been doing this thing for so long and like when somebody presents something or God starts to stir your heart, you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. I don't have four practical steps of being a better Christ follower at the end of this. I just know that I don't want to be a pastor who shies away from difficult topics. 
And if I can encourage you to dig deeper than the surface and do some soul searching, then I think we're on the path, at least moving in a direction towards spiritual maturity. Luke, the physician turned Jesus follower who traveled with some of the disciples, recorded these words from the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 20, 20, 20, verse 20, he says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful, helpful to you. But I have taught you publicly and from house to house. Verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Look at the language. Have faith in our Lord Jesus. Believe. Turn to God in repentance. Follow. Repentance literally means to change your mind or to turn around and to go the other way. The message from the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, is that we must believe and follow. As I studied and was reading and just going through all kinds of DTR conversations that you find in the Gospels, I came to a place and I was like, I don't even know how to end this message. I could tell you what I've been doing. I spent time this week asking God for forgiveness of being more of a fan than a follower. What has it cost me to follow Jesus? Has it cost me anything? Has following Jesus cost you anything? And I think the hard reality is this. If following Jesus hasn't cost us anything at all, then maybe we're not really following him. We're just admiring him. There are people all across the world who are giving up their lives to follow Jesus. Meanwhile, I can't give up Netflix to spend a little more time in prayer. I don't mean that as an indictment toward anyone in the room except myself. And while that example sounds very specific, it's really just an example or a metaphor. What am I willing to give up to pursue Jesus? Am I just like the rich young ruler, unwilling to lay down the things that are the most important to me? I want to end with this question. If following Jesus costs you everything, would it still be worth it? Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, we're not in a situation where that's, you know what I mean? Like, we're not in some of these other places where it's illegal and all the things. I mean, three years ago, everybody was losing their mind. You know, the government's trying to control us all. Can't have church. Ah, I don't know if that qualifies as the same thing as professing Jesus and then you die. We haven't reached uh, that kind of persecution yet. If we don't get this Jesus above all thing right, then nothing else matters.
when you're the one with the mic, you're the leader and all the things and the buck stops with you and all the stuff, like, I can tell you that sometimes there's a lot of tension. And we talk about being spirit led, which is one of our core values as a church. There were several, several weeks ago, you know, God just sort of, the Holy Spirit just invaded our, our service. And I remember feeling tension of not knowing what to do, but feeling this draw just to go to the altar and pray. And I don't take that, I don't take it lightly that the things that I do as I try to lead affect what other people do. And I don't take it lightly that it affects people emotionally. People that have been on this journey with us for five, six years, like, you know what I mean? Like, you know when something's going on in my heart and we're talking or whatever, and like you feel it. And I don't take that lightly. A few weeks ago, Max and Nikki were leading a song and I told the team this, I think the next practice, but I had moved to this keyboard, Angie was playing and I came over and I was playing here and they were singing when I think about the Lord. And it was just, it was just like three weeks after that outpouring that we'd had. And I felt so strongly that I needed to go to the altar and pray. And I was like, God, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that because I didn't, and this is, it was my, my pride, I guess, right? I, I, I didn't want to be perceived as trying to manipulate a situation of trying to duplicate or reproduce something that God had done weeks prior. Does that make sense? And so, and so instead of doing what I felt prompted by the Lord to do, I knelt over here on the stage. And I was like, I'll just do it this way. And nothing really happened. Like we just, we carried on with service and we did the things. And God was still here. He was, he gave me grace, but I knew that I was disobedient. Here's the reason why I'm telling you that story. Like, I'm new to all of this, right? I'm six years in. Maybe you should get the hang of it by now. I don't know how long it takes to get the hang of it. I know that I never, I'm, I'm authentic enough to tell you I never want to manipulate somebody. I'm telling you that there have been times in my life when I viewed Je I've been a fan of Jesus and not a follower of Jesus. And as we're closing this out, I mean, this is weird. Like, I don't know, right? This is a long buildup to, to say what I'm about to say. I say all that as a disclaimer to say I am not intending to manipulate anything. And, and again, I said this weeks and weeks ago, but I feel like I need to just come to the altar and that's what I'm going to do. And I don't care what you do. Like, I don't mean it like I don't care. Do what you want. I don't mean that. I'm saying stay at your seat. Come to the altar. If you need God, Scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. His name is Jesus. So if you don't know that and you're there and you're like, I want to be saved, you don't have to have somebody to lead you in a prayer. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. You can do it at your seat. You can do it at an altar. You can do it in your car. You can do it on, in your bedroom, on your couch, whatever. The, all you have to do is cry out to the Lord. What I'm saying to you 
is I'm not trying to manipulate everything, anything. And I know I said that 20 times. So what I'm going to do now is put the mic out. And I'm going to come to the altar. I don't have a moment with God. And I'm going to repent for being a follower. I mean a fan and not a follower. And whatever else you do is on you.
On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz.